You know, there are certain fragrances that uh, last for a lifetime. In fact, the scientists tell us that our olfactory nerves are one of the nerves that connects almost directly to the part of the brain that holds our memories. This is my grandmother, Eltravogue's backgammon game. We used to play backgammon all the time. And it's interesting because whenever I open it, there's a particular smell. I, I can't even tell you what the smell is, but immediately... I'm back in Ottawa, Illinois, sitting in her kitchen, hearing her laugh around Thanksgiving or Christmas, and having her say, Are we going to play backgammon, Chad? Oh, yeah, Grandma. We're going to play AC Doocy. Grandma, we always play AC Doocy. Oh, good. And we play backgammon together. This scent has lasted for generations. Maybe it's a toy cupboard that reminds you of growing up in your grandma's house. Maybe it's a smell of hay around Halloween or November. You smell some hay and all of a sudden you're remembering raising horses as a kid or horseback riding or playing in the barn. Maybe it's perfume. It's a particular perfume. You're in an elevator and somebody's wearing it in front of you as the place crowds in and all of a sudden you're reminded of of your mom who passed away because she used to wear that particular scent. Or maybe the, the scent that you wore on your wedding day. All of a sudden these smells, these scents, trigger and you realize that these scents last for a lifetime they trigger something they stay with you in mark chapter 14 today we're going to find there are some scents that last for a lifetime in fact we're here in cincinnati 2000 years later talking about some of these very scents because of what someone did in a room with jesus way back around 33 a.d we're going to look at some of the sense of the past of what happened in that circumstance and then maybe look at some, some ways in which we can create some sense that can last for a lifetime as well. So if you have your Bibles with me or with you today, if you want to turn to Mark chapter 14, we're going to look at the sense of the past and the sense of the future in hopes that we can begin to create the kind of sense, the kind of smells, the kind of experiences that will last and create memories for a lifetime. We begin with the sense of the past, with the sense of leprosy. It says, after two days, it was Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This was a week-long celebration of sacrifice that everyone, all the Jewish people, would come to Jerusalem for. Now, immediately there's a smell that you and I don't have that smell because we didn't grow, around, grow up around the tabernacle, around the temple. When we come to church, we just think of it as a room. But actually, if you asked a, a typical Jewish a child or family member, what does the worship of God smell like? It's, it smells like a barbecue. Oh yeah, every time you come to temple, there's a roasting lamb. There's roasting sacrifices. Oh, I love coming to worship. It's like having the best barbecue ever. There was this scent that stayed with you the rest of your life. All year long, you'd smell uh, cooking lamb and you'd say, Oh, that reminds me of my forgiveness. That reminds me of the time I was made right with God. Well, it's during this time that the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. They said, hey, let's not do it during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And being in Bethany, if you remember several weeks ago, maybe a month ago, we talked about the meaning of Bethany. There's two meanings. It can either mean the house of figs or the house of dates. I took the position of the house of figs. But either way, again, you have a a city known for its orchards of figs. So there's a sweet-smelling aroma to Bethany. And yet we find ourselves in the house of Simon the leper. And again, we have another scent that can last for a lifetime. 
If you've seen documentaries on leprosy or seen anyone with leprosy, it's a condition where your nerve endings stop working. Because of that, you gash your hand or your foot and you can't feel it anymore. And so your body begins to decay. You actually begin to have the smell of death about you when you're a leper. And Simon, back in Mark chapter 1, verse 40, way back nine months ago when we began the series in Mark, he was healed of leprosy. And for him, the stench of leprosy was a reminder that he was unwanted, that he was unclean, that he was out of God's presence, that he, no one wanted to associate with him ceremonially, religiously, but even just the stench of being around somebody with leprosy would stick with you as a scent of death. But he has been cleansed. He has been washed. He has been anointed. And so as Jesus comes to his house, it is a reminder of what he once was and the memory of that scent that is gone. And in the middle of the scent of leprosy, they would sit down for dinner and they would have a table that was low. And so when you were eating at dinner, you would recline yourself with one hand and you would reach at the table and you would eat with your other hand. And as there was dialogue going on and conversations going on that day, all of a sudden this aroma begins to fill the room as they're eating. It was a shocking aroma and a very pleasant one. A woman came up behind Jesus and in her hand, she had a perfumed alabaster vase. She came next to Jesus and she broke the seal. And she poured, not a drop like might be customary for guests. She poured the entire thing over his head. He may have looked into her eyes and took this as an incredible act of hospitality and worship as the oils dripped down into his hair, into his clothes. And all of a sudden, there's a hush in the room. Rarely have they ever seen somebody anoint using an entire jar of perfume. A whole year's wages was being poured upon Jesus in this lavish act of generosity. And all of a sudden, the room is perfumed with this incredible aroma. In fact, here's what it says in the passage. It says, that he sat, as he sat at the table, the woman came, and we don't know who the woman is. Some people think it's Mary, because in another gospel, Mary anoints Jesus' feet. But this seems very different. I think it's a totally different woman. That woman anointed before the triumphal entry. This one anoints his head after the triumphal entry. And it's a very costly kind of oil, and it's the oil of spikenard. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Just to give you an idea what that scent might smell like, spikenard smelled like spicy woods. Imagine the the smell of walking through the woods and the memories that brings back and the aroma of, of a pine tree with a little bit of spice to it. And all of a sudden, this memory of these fumes, these smells, this moment is going to stay with everybody at that party forever. Every time they smell the spikenard, they're going to remember, you're not going to believe what happened to me. I was there the day that a woman poured an entire jar of perfume over Jesus. That scent would last for a lifetime. And as they were enjoying this sacred moment, all of a sudden another stench comes into the room, the kind of stench that just spoils everything. We've all had moments like that. You're driving down the, on a car ride, and all of a sudden you, you drive by somebody hit a skunk, and oh, the a stench, just everything changes. You drive by a, an old pig farm and all of a sudden you're like, oh my goodness, the stench just permeates the moment, it permeates the car and the same thing happens here. Right in the middle of the stench of beautiful generosity becomes the stench of greed. But it's a really unique kind of greed. It's what I call finger-pointing stinginess. 
It's the kind of stench of greed that criticizes other people for their giving rather than looking at your own heart on how you should give. It's a unique kind of self-righteous greed, and the stench of it fills the room. It says there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why has this oil been wasted? I wouldn't have spent it that way. For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii. That's a year's wages. And given to the poor for crying out loud. And they criticized her sharply. And here we see the spirit of this finger-pointing stinginess. It's sharp. It's critical. It's indignant. It's interesting, you know, over the years, I've had the opportunity to be part of building several buildings. And I remember when I was at my last church, we were going through a building campaign. And when we did, I remember some friends of ours got together and said, could we sit down and chat about uh, what we're doing as a church? I said, oh, we'd love to do that. We're going through like a six-week, eight-week journey, wrestling with our finances. And they said, I just can't believe we're building this building. And you know how much that costs and square footage and and Think of how many orphans this could feed. I said, you know, there's no need for you to give. We're just giving an opportunity what we think God's doing. We feel like this is going to be kind of church that's going to educate people and inspire people toward generosity and helping the poor for generations. But if you're really that concerned about the poor, once you come for six to eight weeks, don't give anything to the church. But let God wrestle with the role of money in your life, and maybe you'll want to give to the poor and the needy in a way that, uh, that you're talking about. And every time I've had this conversation, and sometimes you're just having healthy conversations with people who really want to ask questions, but more times than not, you have this finger-pointing stinginess where people say, I don't like how you're spending your money, but they don't want to look in the mirror and how they're spending theirs. So like a lot of people do when there's a building campaign at a church, is they skip church for six to eight weeks. <laughs> and that's what they did. And at the end of the eight weeks, I came and said, I haven't seen you guys. Did you end up wrestling with whether or not God was calling you to give to those priorities you were talking about, like the needy and the poor? No, we just decided to wait until it was over and come back. And it's the same thing that's going on here. When we criticize other people's spending or giving, it's just saying, God, what are you calling me to do? It's just this aroma, the stench to that. I saw a guy who uh, spoke this week, uh, a TED-type talk that I listened to, and he said he grew up as a missionary and saw himself going into the mission field. He got married, and he had reduced his expenses down to $10 a day, total expenses. But he was living under guilt because every 50 cents, every quarter, every dollar he could save is a way in which he would have a little bit more money to give to the poor. And though he was motivated by something good, he found himself later realizing he was in incredible bondage, that he could never save enough, he could never cut expenses enough. He was under bondage in that. Well, instead of going into the mission field, he went into business. And in his business, he, made, he, he hit it big. He was making millions of dollars a year. And all of a sudden, where once he couldn't save enough, now he could never get enough. And he realized the same problem he had when he was poor was the same problem he had when he was rich. He was in bondage to money. When he was poor, he would say, well, that, that, I can't believe you'd waste money. I can't believe you bought a BMW. A BMW is totally inappropriate. Now, Cadillac's okay. But not a Ferrari. A Toyota's okay. Just this arbitrary way in which we decide what is waste and what isn't. He said, what I realized is, I was a materialist. When I was rich, I defined myself by my car, my house, my clothes. But when I was poor, I defined myself by my material. Oh, I would never wear a $1,000 shirt. I pride myself in my $10 t-shirt. He identified himself by his material. He was a materialist. 
He identified himself by what he drove when he was poor, just like he would when he's rich. And the amazing thing about the gospel is the gospel rescues you from being a materialist, a poor materialist, a middle class materialist or an upper class materialist. You're no longer defined by your material. You don't need to finger point stingy at other people's giving. You begin to ask God what he wants you to do with your giving. And as the stench has sort of ruined the moment, moment, God jumps in. Jesus jumps in and brings in another sweet-smelling aroma to the room. He confronts these folks and says, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? You know what's going on here? It's not a waste. She has done a good work for me. You're going to have the poor with you always. And whenever you wish, you may do them good. And that's a good thing to help the poor. But me, you do not have always. It's a unique window of time. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be told as a memorial. This is the kind of scent that lasts for a lifetime. Stop the criticism. Stop the critique. Stop ruining this moment. Now, notice, look at the last two words. This will be a memorial. I would have said a moral to Jesus, a moral to God, a moral to her generosity, to the grace of God. But look what he says. It's a memorial to her. When you give lavishly to something God has called you to give to, you catch God's attention because your heart is behind it. Instead of criticizing other people, God, what are you calling me to do? And God says, for the rest of mankind... My message is going to go out. And 2,000 years later, in Cincinnati, Ohio, halfway across the world, people will be talking about the scent that you participate, that this woman has done here. This is the scent that will last for a lifetime. And it did. And just as they were sort of taking back from the stench of being rebuked and all of a sudden the beauty of generosity and being honored and Jesus talking about the kind of sense that lasts forever, another stench comes in. And ruins the moment again. And this time it's the stench of betrayal. Because just as Jesus affirmed using your money to affirm God's priorities and how God loves a cheerful giver and cheerful heart, all of a sudden the writer tells us that the stench of betrayal has come in the room. Judas shows up. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests, having seen this, to betray him to them. Remember, they said they weren't going to try and uh, go after him during this week. But now, because of what Judas has done, they've changed their mind. They have an opportunity. When they heard that Judas was willing to betray him, they were glad. And they promised to give him money. And here we got Judas, who in the earlier passage criticized the woman for putting the expensive oil on Jesus' feet. And the writer tells us, because he was the treasurer and was stealing from the treasury. So he sounded very pious and righteous criticizing other people's giving when really he was driven by greed. And we see that again here, that he is willing to sell out his friend for money. And you feel the stench of betrayal. And look at the last line. So he sought, Judas, how he might conveniently betray him. Listen, I'm willing to betray Jesus as long as it's convenient. I'm not really a morning person, so as long as I can kiss him at night, well, that'd be fine. I just want to make sure it's a convenient betrayal. It's an egocentric, self-centered life, willing to give up a friend for a little bit of money, as long as it's convenient. Betrayal is the kind of stench that lasts for generations as well. You might be smelling a particular perfume, and it's the kind of scent that reminds you of 
someone who cheated on you. It might be a glass of wine, and every time you drink that wine, you're reminded of being in a restaurant when your business partner told you he was giving up on the business and he wasn't doing his part, and that was the last dinner you had before he felt like he stabbed you in the back. It might even be turkey and cranberries, where many people have these fond memories of the smell of turkey. You remember that gathering three years ago when your mother-in-law or your sister or your brother had that nasty thing to say over the dinner table, and you felt betrayed, you felt scarred, you felt wounded, and the scent of that turkey reminds you of that bitterness and that anger that still brings up the memory that God wants you to let go of. And if you ask Judas, or if you ask those criticizing the woman to explain what she had done, they would say, this makes no sense. It makes no sense to take a year's worth of wages and pour it upon Jesus. To which she would say, this makes total sense. This is the kind of thing that lasts forever. The sense I'm creating, the moments I'm creating, even before Jesus told her it would be a memorial, she said it makes sense to take your valuable sense to create lasting sense. It just makes sense to use your valuable sense, your time, your treasure, and your resources, and to pour them out in this world in a way that create lasting sense that stay with people and God uses the aroma of your life to impact generations. I think that's the principle of the text. It makes sense to give your valuable sense to create lasting sense in this world. But if her sense spread 2,000 years later, what does it look like for us to do the same as we move forward? Well, I think there's several principles here as we look to the sense of the future. The first one, I think, is seen when she breaks the flask. The scent of generosity almost always begins with breaking. You see, she had to break the seal. For some think it was a wax ring that was around it, so you had to break it. So you could pour a little out, but you'd have to do that no matter what. It's almost like she took the lid and smashed it down and said, we're never going to use this again. I'm pouring it all out for this moment. I'm going to just dump it upon Jesus. I want him to give, I want to give him my very best. I want him to know exactly how I feel about him. I want to know exactly how I care about him. But generosity almost always begins with breaking. Every time in my life I become more generous in my life, it always began with a break. I had to break my overspending. I had to break my over-security that money was my security or my bank account or my payroll was my security. I had to break my overthinking, my overspending, my overindulging. God had to break something in me, and through that brokenness, I poured out to others a new spirit of generosity. I mean, imagine you're there in the room. Jesus reclining at the table. Someone comes up behind, and you recognize that alabaster jar. It's one year's Wages. Think about that. Think about your household income in one jar. How much work did you put into the last year? How many weekends went into that? How many hours? More than that, how long would it take you or did it take you to save up? Not just make a year's wages, but to, in addition, save up a year's wages. That's a lot of time. That's a lot of investing. That's a lot of patience. And that represented your security. That represented something incredibly valuable to you. What would it mean for you to say, this is what I 
longed for. This is the moment I've waited for. To give it all, to pour it out upon Jesus. It was shocking. But she said, I want this to be the kind of scent that lasts forever. I'm willing to break something valuable because, and I think here's the point, I want to give my greatest gift to God's greatest gift. I want to give my greatest gift to the greatest giver. I think that's the first principle we see. I think the second one we see is not that we begin generosity with breaking, but the second thing we notice in the text is what does alabaster jar look like? There's several different jars that were going on during that time. There were some Egyptian ones. There were some Greek ones. There were some Persian ones. The Hebrew ones both were glass. And sometimes, because they're in a Greek-Roman culture, they would have Greek or Roman ones. So this is what an alabaster jar looked like. Took the top off, broke it as she was pouring it. So imagine that's in her hand as she's pouring it. And we see the second point is that the scent of generosity is always going to overpower alternative options. There is never going to be a lack of things to give to. And every time you choose to give to one thing, by the very nature of that, you've chosen not to give to other things. And there can be false guilt with that. There can be shame with that. You can come in contact with people with their their finger pointing stinginess. I just want to free you to say, you need to wrestle with what God's called you to do. Because the sin of generosity is you feel God is nudging you to give to one thing because God's nudged you to do this. And other people are going to question your motives and and they're going to have their own bad motives and they're going to have their own self-righteous hidden greed. But God wants you to know he smiles upon your generosity. In fact, he says, what you're doing is a good work. I saw your heart's motivation when you gave. I saw your heart's motivation when you sacrificed. I want you to know that all of heaven is looking down upon this moment, and I am pleased with you. God is pleased with you in this moment. I had somebody come in my office about a month ago, and they said, Hey, Chad, I really am wrestling with how much percentage I should give of my income. Do you think I should give 10%? I said, well, you know what? I think you might be frustrated, but I'm not going to answer that question. Why not? I come to the pastor's office and I ask him how much I should give. I mean, isn't your answer uh, a certain number? I said, I want you to not give out of some sense of legalism. I want you to give because you really are giving a gift because you understand the gift. God loves a cheerful giver, people who purpose in their heart. I said, let's talk about what God means to you and what he's done for you and what it means that he's died for you. Let's talk about the spirit of grace in your life. He says, well, what number, though? And so we talked about that. I said, well, here's some principles. I think giving a percentage of your income is a good idea because every time you give a percentage, it reminds you that God's the one that gave you all of it. But 10% might be too little. God might be calling you to give 20%. But 10% might be too much. As you're looking at all the different opportunities, you might want to give a percentage here to this area. and God's got all these different priorities. But I think a percentage is a good idea. And I think giving to God's priorities, including the church, including the poor, including your family, including savings, all these are God's priorities. And I think you should arrange your your money based on God's priorities. And I said, I think every year you should become progressively more generous. God, I want to be as generous to others as you've been to me. After about an hour together, we prayed. And she said, man, this was so helpful. I said, I still didn't give you a number, did I? She said, no, but I feel like I have the right heart to know what to do. And that is what God is calling us and challenging us to is say, when you give generously, it is something beautiful. And for this woman, 
I can't even guess what percentage this was that she would give something so valuable. The next principle is that the sin of generosity maximizes windows of opportunity. She says, the poor you're going to have with you always, that need is never going to go away. And 2,000 years later, that still hasn't gone away. But this unique moment of time is that I am not with you always. She knows, and she's anointing me for my burial. She knows this is my last week on earth. I've been telling everybody I'm going to die, and you're all like, what's he talking about? She gets it. She is anointing me for my burial. She gets what I'm doing far more than anyone else, which is why I think her heart's motivation is, he's about to die for me. Why would I? He's about to give his whole life for me. Why would I not give my very best to him? Because her giving is actually an anointing. I think that's the most important part of this passage. Look what Jesus says. He says, she has done what she could. She has come beforehand, before I die. You'd use these kind of spices typically to anoint a body after it died. She's come beforehand. She gets what I'm about to anoint me, to pour upon my body for burial. She gets what I'm here for. Surely I say to you, this is a memorial. This is the kind of anointing that lasts forever to her. See, when, when oil was used in the Old Testament, it was often used to mark royalty. The King David and the King Solomon, oil be poured upon them. They were marked as chosen by God, marked as significant, marked as royal, marked as forgiven. And when you become a follower of Christ, no matter what pitfalls you've had, no matter what reoccurring sins you have, no matter what habits you have, whether it's like, oh, it's my anger issue, oh, it's my greed issue, oh, it's my pornography issue, and you go, what, I've been marked God wants to work with me. He, he anoints me. I've been chosen. I've been loved. I've been cared for. And when you realize he anoints you, forgives you of your past, your present, your future, you want to anoint him. In fact, let me show you a few passages from the Old Testament. When David was chosen king, they anointed him. It says, therefore, God, your God has anointed you, David, with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And more than that, you didn't take your clothes off to get anointed. That's what we'd be like. I don't want to get my pants dirty. You would, in your full robe, stand there and the oil be poured upon you. And it would soak into your shirt. It would soak into your robes. It soaked into your clothes. And that's what she says here. He says here, all your garments were scented with the myrrh and the aloes and the cassia. So wherever the king went, wherever the chosen one went, wherever the, the, the one that God had chosen to be the leader went, he smelled like a king. They do it with Solomon as well. Song of Solomon. The lover turning to King Solomon and says, Who is this who comes from the wilderness like pillars of smoke? Perfumed. The king is perfumed with myrrh and frankincense. Isn't that interesting? That when Jesus was born in the manger, he was anointed as God's chosen one with frankincense and myrrh. And right before he goes to the triumphal entry, a woman anoints him. And his feet as God's chosen one. And here, right before he goes to his Passion Week, he's anointed as God's chosen one, the Messiah. In fact, when, when Solomon was chosen king, it says the priest, Zadok, had Solomon ride on King David's mule. He's riding on a donkey after being anointed. Zadok the priest took a horn of oil from the tabernacle and anointed Solomon so he would be perfumed as he walked through the main streets before the people. And as they blew the horn and as he walked through the city, they could smell the king. They could smell the chosen one. They could smell who God had picked. And they said, long live King Solomon. And the amazing thing about this passage 
is that in the same way, Jesus is about to walk his most difficult walk through his Passion Week. And guess what God did right before? He goes before the people to triumphal entry. He's anointed. Right before he goes into his Passion Week, he's anointed. And the smell of the perfume is still soaked into his hair, still soaked into his garments, still soaked into his skin, a whole year's worth of perfume. Now walk with me. As Jesus leaves that dinner that night, still soaked, and he makes his way down to the garden. And as he's praying, not my will, but yours be done. You can smell that he's been anointed the king. Later on that night, as he walks and his disciples keep sleeping instead of praying with him, he'll come across Judas. And Judas will come and betray him and kiss him on the cheek. And if he smells... He is betraying the one that God has anointed as the king. He smells like the chosen one. As he continues through the night, he will then be arrested. He will be mocked. He'll be taken before Pilate. He'll have a mockery of a trial. But even then, anyone as he walks through the streets of the Sanhedrin and on his way to trial, if you smell it, you can smell the king. As the crowds yell out, Hosanna, Hosanna, long live the king, they can smell he's the anointed one. And now on his march to the cross, he'll be put on a scourging post, whipped and punched, chunks of him ripped out by the whip that's used. And in the midst of the blood, in the midst of the sweat, you can still get a whiff of the anointing. As the crowds cry out, Barabbas, Barabbas, crucify Jesus. As he walked through the city streets on his way to Golgotha. In the midst of the hustle and bustle, if you leaned in enough. If you had eyes to see and nose to hear or nose to smell, you would smell that God had been using all senses to say, this is my chosen one. To which he was marched up the hill to Golgotha and to the place of the skull and. Railroad spike nails were pounded into his hands and into his feet. And even then, with all the blood, he was just totally disbarred, totally just mangled. And as the blood and the sweat dripped down, still if you leaned in enough, you might be able to smell it. The smell of the anointing still upon him from a woman who gave it all as a memorial to his death for her. And Paul will pick up on these themes of incense offerings when he asks us to ask ourselves a question. As Jesus heads through what we know as the stations of the cross, have you ever thought about not looking at him, but smelling what he's done? Who he is, what it meant for him to die for you, to give of himself for you, to give graciously of himself for you. If you get it, if that soaks in, if you breathe it in, then you, like the woman, will start to say, man, it just makes sense to give my valuable sense to create lasting sense that impact God's work for generations. So here's the question. If that's true, then here's the question. What does my living... And what does my giving 
smell like? What does it smell like when you're at home? What does it smell like in your department? What does it smell like when you speak? What kind of words come out of your mouth? What does it smell like in the way you interact with your your clients? What does it smell like in the way, if we look at your calendar, what does your calendar smell like? What does your checkbook smell like? What does your next door neighbor who's maybe unconvinced about Jesus, when he sees how you interact with your kids or how you interact with the neighborhood, what does your life smell like? 2 Corinthians says it this way. Now, thanks be to God who always leads us in the triumph of Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death. To the other, we are the aroma of life leading to life. There's a term called anthropomorphic, and that's when you assign personal attributes to God. And God wants you to know that as far as we're concerned, he has a nose. And he smells our checkbooks. He smells our hearts. He smells our hands. He smells our words. And the question is, what does your living and what does your giving smell like? And is it motivated by the ultimate giver? And the greatest gift. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for what you did for us. Thank you that we get a chance to celebrate Easter through Christmas over the next four or five weeks. And I just ask that you will bring us afresh to what it means to be forgiven, to be loved, to be cleansed. And that our hearts would pour back to you in response to what we've received from you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. Thanks for being here today. If you came prepared to give us some offering boxes, if you're new to the church, we'd love to say hi. Third door on your left is the hearth room. Some folks there to greet you. Thanks again.